turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings 3. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. The wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. Now we know this is true, right? Yet in spite of all that, in spite of our knowledge of that, we continue to make choices oftentimes that are and decisions that are just poor. And that's why and which tells us that's why we need the wisdom of God. So we won't continue to make such decisions. But even with the wisdom of God, if we do not allow ourselves to be controlled by his wisdom, then we're going to be in trouble. Now, 1 Kings 3 is a chapter about wisdom. Mainly it's a chapter about the value of the of having the wisdom of God. But it also shows us that we're too easily prone to follow the wisdom of the world. So I'm going to divide this chapter up into two sections. Number one, worldly wisdom. And number two, godly wisdom. First of all, let's look at worldly wisdom. That's verse one. It says, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, no comment is made, either negative or positive, about what's happening here, which is typical of the historical books. That happens a lot. Things are just recorded as facts. No comments given, and we move on. But there is a problem here. Can you see the problem? It says, Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he's early into his kingship, as we have already looked at chapters 1 and 2. But on the, and, and as you look at this, on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a problem at all. You just read the verse and go to the next verse, right? And keep, keep reading. Shouldn't be a big deal. But uh, there is a, a problem. There's a big problem here. The problem is he marries Solomon, marries an Egyptian woman. Now, the problem is not the nationality of the woman. The problem is the religious background of the woman. She basically is an idolater. Egyptians worship many gods. And you can imagine the, the daughter of Pharaoh. She is going to be involved in blatant idolatry. And so, and she would grow up that way. And this is the woman that Solomon marries. And in doing so, he seals an alliance, a marriage alliance, between Egypt and Israel. So we have two problems here. First one is there's this political alliance established with a pagan nation, Israel, God's chosen people, and a pagan nation in a political alliance. And number two, Solomon has married a godless woman. Now, had Solomon been, been reading his scriptures, as Deuteronomy 17 said that kings should be doing, and I'm sure he, he, he had to know this. Deuteronomy 17, 16 expressly tells the future kings of Israel, uh, and I quote, don't cause, the, don't cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, he says. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And the Egyptians were known for their horse trade. And people would go down there and trade horses, buy horses, and so on and so forth. But since the Lord has delivered Israel out of the slavery of Egypt, he did not want them to go there, not, not to return there. They're forbidden to return to Egypt. And since they're forbidden to return to Egypt, then why would you make an alliance with them? Why would you do this? Now, nations in these days and in those days make alliances and made alliances with other nations because it would, it would help them militarily or maybe in business trade or in other ways. It's something that nations have done for centuries, and oftentimes it, make good, it makes good sense. After all, a nation could be vulnerable on its own, and so it will establish a, an alliance with another nation so it can be strengthened. And it, 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 it seems like a smart move, even a wise move, and in, in many nations it probably is. But 
For Israel, it is not a good move. It is not a wise move. The Lord again and again warned Israel, do not make alliances with other nations. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It says in Deuteronomy 7, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them and you shall make what? What's the next words? You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images of fire, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. No covenant of any kind is to be made by Israel with other nations. It's very plain. He says it again and again not to do it. No intermarriage is to take place. With, between Israelites and, and pagan peoples. And the reason is, if they, get, if they get married, their hearts are going to be turned away from the Lord to these false gods. See, other nations didn't serve the Lord. They didn't go by the Bible. Here's a question. How can the nation of Israel, under the rule of God, make joint decisions with the nation that rejects biblical principles? How can they do that? How can a husband and wife serve the Lord together if one of them knows the Lord and the other one doesn't, the other one's a blatant idolater. How is that possible? As in the case of Solomon and this Egyptian woman. And the tendency is for such marriages is that the godly person will be swayed by the ungodly, the desires of the ungodly person to, to get engage in a wrong practice. That's what normally happens. The temptation for Solomon is he's going he's he's to be tempted to cave into the religious interests of his wife. Got that temptation to face. Joshua warned about this as well. He warned Israel in Joshua 23, 12, if such alliances took place to pagans, listen to this, how he describes this. If you make an alliance with pagan nations, you intermarry with pagan people, here's what's going to happen to you. Those pagan peoples are going to be a snare to you. And they're going to be a trap to you. And they're going to be a whip on your sides. And they're going to be a thorn in your eyes. Can he, how much more descriptive can he be? Nothing good at all about this. This is nothing other than worldly wisdom. Nations of the world think that we need to find, we need to, to make alliances with other nations. It may not be a problem for them. It may not be a bad idea for, the, idea for them, but it's a bad idea for Israel in the Old Testament. They're forbidden to do such things. Yet here Solomon is caving in to the wisdom of the world, thinking, wow, uh, we need, this is what everybody does. This is what the nations of the world do. Let's do this thing. This makes a lot of sense. Caving into the worldly wisdom. The world says, why not strengthen yourself with a political alliance through marriage? Why not do that? Now, that's thinking in terms of worldly wisdom. It's definitely not thinking in terms of godly wisdom. It's not thinking in terms of biblical wisdom. That's the wisdom of the world. It may seem logical. It may seem practical. It may be for the world, as a matter of fact, but not for the people of God. Never good when a believer gets into an alliance, an ungodly alliance with someone who doesn't know the Lord, it's a spiritual disaster waiting to happen. And it happens all the time. We see it all the time. We warn people, and yet they 
plunge ahead with these kind of alliances. For example, believers marry unbelievers. And they, and they are warned, and I've warned people and, about this, and they've plunged ahead and married the unbeliever and paid the price for it. That believers enter into partnership with unbelievers. And, and believers team up with false religions and an ecumenical effort of some kind. Can you imagine our church getting together with false religions and teaming up in some kind of an evangelistic effort? Believers do these kind of things, and, and they cave. if they cave into worldly wisdom, they're going to pay a steep price. Again and again, it's true. Not to mention the fact that Solomon set up a horrible example for his people. He married this godless woman, and if Solomon can marry godless woman, can you hear the average citizen in Israel thinking, well, if Solomon can marry godless woman, why can't I? What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character in there, in there named Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And this guy goes around giving out advice to people. He gives bad advice. He gives worldly advice, advice that has nothing to do with the Scriptures at all. He sees Christian, and he gives him some bad advice. He gives him advice that's contrary to the Bible. He gives him advice that he, he tells him not to listen to evangelists. That guy's going to give you some horrible advice. Don't listen to him. Here, I, I've got a better idea. Go the way I tell you to go. And he does. And he realizes later on this is the wrong direction. Fortunately, the evangelist puts him back on the track to the right direction. But worldly wisdom always puts the Christian on the wrong track. It always happens. Wisdom of the world can't be trusted. That's why 1 Corinthians 2.5 says, Your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We wonder often, why are so many people unbelievers in this world why are there so many that don't know christ in this world first corinthians 1:18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing it's foolishness but to us who are being saved it's the power of god they don't get it, it to them it's 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 insane it's absurd now that now we know that the true riches of of uh, of christ or of the gospel are found in christ we know this is true colossians 2 3 says in christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and so to neglect in Christ, to reject Christ, is to reject true wisdom. But Solomon forges this alliance with this ungodly woman and with this ungodly nation. And what he's doing right here in verse 1, even though there's no comment made yet at all, it's, just, it's like a heads up. It's like a red flag waving to us. Hey, check this out before you go on. He's planting the seeds of his own destruction. And it's just almost in passing that it's mentioned here. The believer has no business following the wisdom of the world. The rest of the chapter is about godly wisdom. You have the worldly wisdom in verse 1. The rest of the chapter is godly wisdom. Now, verse 1 is not the main thrust of the chapter. But I want you to know that it is a situation that will not bode well for the future. But now let's turn our attention to godly wisdom. First of all, verses 2 to 4, let's notice the precursor to godly wisdom. The precursor to godly wisdom. Verse 2, the people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now before a person can gain the wisdom of God, the first thing he must do is love the Lord and fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And why would you be interested in God's wisdom if you don't love the Lord? Why would you even bother with it? Why would you think to ask for it? Why would it even be a desire of yours at all? If you don't care about God, you're not going to do that. 
But here we find that Solomon loved the Lord, even with the situation in verse 1. Verse 3 plainly states, Solomon loved the Lord. I read, somebody said this, I think this is the only time in Scripture maybe that it says a person actually loved the Lord. Now, check, I'm a, those of you who check such things out, check me out. You can tell me if I'm wrong later on. But, and, and we should love the Lord. The Bible says, uh, it says in the law, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can't doubt that Solomon loved the Lord. Some would doubt here that Solomon truly loved the Lord. I've read that. We can't doubt it. Why? Because the Bible says he did. It says there, Solomon loved the Lord. That's what he says. And, and it goes on to say he was walking in the statutes of his father David, which tells us something else. We can see here that when it says a person loves God, it doesn't mean he's just shy of sinless perfection. We talk about people, oh, that person really loves God. Well, the rest of us don't all that much, I guess, you know. And I understand what they're saying, but you look at these two guys here in verse 3. We've talked about David much through the books we've looked at. David, very, very much a flawed man. Solomon has already violated a principle of Scripture in verse 1, early in his kingship. But the general course of his life at this time is one of reverence to God, one of obedience to God, and one who, it says here, he's worshiping God. He, display, he gives a thousand offerings to the Lord at this time. And so he truly does love the Lord. And love for God is the precursor. <clears throat> it's just before, it's the beginning of godly wisdom. <clears throat> now the question may come up in your mind, you're reading these verses. Well, if Solomon loved the Lord, why is he offering sacrifices on the high places? Verse 2, look at verse 2 again. It says, the people were still, or other translations, only the people were sacrificing on the high places. The word still is, is Nasby here. People were still sacrificing on high places. That's a word that signals us to something. Verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. He obeyed the word of God like his father had done, except, see the word except? He sacrificed and burned incense on high places. Now, what were the high places? Well, those were places, normally open air uh, places to to offer sacrifices, uh, usually elevated, usually on a hill or a mountain or something like that. Sometimes they could be found in towns. In some of the references in Scripture, sometimes it could be found in a valley. A Gibeon, a place where Solomon was an was a established high place. Now, here's the problem. Worship at high places was a Canaanite custom. And what they do? They would offer sacrifices to many gods in these high places. In fact, Deuteronomy 12 has something to say about that. It says in Deuteronomy 12, 2, God says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you go dispossess served other gods on the high mountains, the high places, on the hills, high places, under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their asherim with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. So Israel is forbidden to worship in places like this, high places where idolatry is, is observed. So what are they to do? Well, back in Deuteronomy 12 again, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5, says this, it says, <clears throat> you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. <clears throat> in other words, when you get established in the land, God is going to set a place to go worship, one centralized location to go worship. Worship there, not everywhere, all over the place. Verse 6, there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, <clears throat> the contribution of your hand. Your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Look at verse 10. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land in which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, 
and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. So when they settle down in the land of Canaan and they, and they get settled down, they, got, they can establish a place of the Lord's choosing to worship, one centralized location for worship. So the question is, why are Solomon and the people still offering and sacrifices in high places? And the answer is in verse 2 of 1 Kings 3. Look at 1 Kings 3, 2. The people were still sacrificing at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Solomon would build a temple, but it's not built yet. It's not finished yet. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place as to where to worship at at this point when it comes to offering sacrifices. Now, David, you remember the story of the ark? We went through all that, and then the ark was on the house on the hill for a long time, and then they brought it to Jerusalem, and they put the ark of the covenant in the tent in Jerusalem. But it's just kind of there by itself, this ark of the covenant. Well, what's interesting about all this is First Chronicles 16 talks about David offering sacrifices uh, before this tent and this ark in Jerusalem, but the same chapter... 1 Corinthians 16, 39 and 40. Interesting verses. 1, Corinthians, 1 Chronicles, not Corinthians. 1 Corinthians would have been very interesting verses had that taken place. 1 Chronicles 16, 39 and 40. Tell us this. The tabernacle of the Lord in the high place, which was at Gibeon. The tabernacle was at Gibeon. And Zadok is installed as a priest there. Remember, Abiathar was a priest. Zadok was a priest at this time. Zadok was the priest there. So it, it appears there were two places of public worship at this time. The Ark of the Covenant in, in a tent in Jerusalem, the high place at Gibeon. So it's common for people to offer sacrifices at this time in high places. Now, understand this. These people are not offering to idols at this time. There's not idolatry taking place right now. That's not what they're doing at the high place. They're not doing that. That's why there's no violation here. That's why God is not angry with them. That's why he doesn't say anything. They're not idolaters. They're not being condemned for their actions in these verses. Uh, even Solomon is offering sacrifices to the Lord and giving And what's happening? He's being blessed by God there. He will be blessed. So this is the time prior to the building of the temple. Once the temple is built, they're to offer their sacrifices in the temple, not on high places. And later on in, 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 the, in the kings, prophets are going to condemn people for offering to idols, idolatry in, in, high places, in the high places. But for right now, they get a free pass. As verse 2 points out, the temple is not finished. But there's an ominous warning here, seen in the two words still in verse 2 and except in verse 3. Solomon must not violate this command once he gets the temple established. There's no longer worship in high places where idolatry is the, the possibility there. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep an eye on Solomon to see what he does in the coming chapters, see whether he observes that or not. Now, we're talking about the precursor to godly wisdom. I don't want us to get off track here with the high places, okay? Let's go back to what we're talking about here. The precursor to godly wisdom. And that's the real folks of the the text. It says Solomon loved the Lord. He's obeying him as the rule rule of his life at this time. And he so adores the Lord that he lavishly offers a thousand sacrifices, burnt offerings. Although some people don't think that word a thousand means a thousand there. But then again, they never do, these people, okay? A thousand never apparently means a thousand in the Bible to some of these people ever. Um, either words mean things or they don't. But Solomon loves the Lord, genuinely loves the Lord, and he goes to excess to express his love to the Lord. He's primed at this point to receive the Lord's wisdom. 
Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you love the Lord? Do you love him tonight? I don't mean in an obligatory way. Do you love the Lord from your heart? Do you truly love him tonight? Do you adore him? Do you worship him? Do you obey his words? Is this how your heart is tonight? It would be, do us well to think about this tonight. Do you love the Lord? Those who love the Lord will desire his wisdom. If you're lackadaisical in your love for God, wishy-washy in your relationship with God, then you're going to see no need to ask for his wisdom. You're not going to see that, a need for that. Loving the Lord is a precursor to godly wisdom. Secondly, the re- notice the request for godly wisdom in verses 5 to 9. The request for godly wisdom. It says, In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. You have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, this is the same place, Gibeon, this high place we talked about earlier, that the Lord appears to him in a dream. So obviously he's not condemning him at the high place. Now, by the way, don't tell me that you had a dream and that God appeared to you. Please don't tell me that. You can tell Mike that if, if you want to, but not me. I really don't want to hear about it. Um, but, you know, we have completed revelation now. We have the word of God completed. We don't need you to have a dream right now. All the revelation you need is in God's completed holy word. But the Lord, he appeared to Solomon. He sees Solomon's love for him. He sees all this. He sees his lavish devotion to him and offering all his offerings. He sees he's, he's expressing a great heart for God. He sees all this, and he gives him an open invitation to ask whatever he will. He says, ask whatever. Now, what if the Lord told you that? Ask whatever you will. What do you want? What would you say to that? It's similar to statements that Jesus made in the Gospels when he would say, ask whatever you will, and it will be given to you. You ever wondered about those statements? Does that mean I can ask for whatever I want, whatever my heart wants and desires I can ask for? Well, understand this. This open invitation to Solomon, of course, is always based on God's grace. But it is in response to Solomon's love for the Lord. And, 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 and the, the one who loves the Lord is only going to ask for things that please the Lord, right? He's not looking for something that's going to please himself. He's looking to ask for something that's going to please the Lord. And the New Testament... When the Lord offers those, when he puts those prayers out like that, or that, there's re, that opportunity for a request, ask whatever you wish, it's, it's qualified by, you must ask in Jesus' name. You must ask according to God's will. A person who loves the Lord, his prayer re- requests are going to be up in line with the word of God, in line with the will of God. So Sol, the Lord says to Solomon, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now notice Solomon's prayers comprise of two elements. Number one, gratitude. Number two, humility. Gratitude, verse 6, Solomon starts off his prayer. You've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father. You have shown great loving kindness to me. You have placed me on the throne. And so this is how he starts off. He shows gratitude to God for what the Lord has done for him. Just like it says in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant, he said he would do this. He's doing this now. 
And by the way, it's always a good way to begin our prayers by recounting the Lord's goodness to us, by recounting his faithfulness to us, by being a person of gratitude. We, it's always good to start that way. You see that throughout the scripture. God's been good to us, hasn't he? We should always recognize this on a daily basis. A person who loves the Lord, by the way, is going to be grateful to the Lord. And then he talks, his, look at his, his humility in verses 7 and 9. Uh, verse, verse 8, he acknowledges God's sovereignty. You chose Israel. You put me on the throne. That's a mark of humility, by the way, <clears throat> if you acknowledge the Lord's in charge. And uh, verse 7, he says, I'm a little child. I don't know how to come out or to go out or to come in. And that's Solomon's way of saying, I don't have experience in leadership. I don't really know how to do this job. I'm, I'm on the young side, and uh, I'm new to this. I'm a novice to this. Uh, he doesn't know how to guide the nation. He's never been a king before. What would you do in this situation? Difficult job. He's confessing his ignorance here. He's showing his inadequacy. He's showing great humility here. And so he, he says this. He says, I don't know how to go out or to come in. I need, I need your, your help in leadership. He realizes that God has, though the God has chosen him to be king, he's nothing more than the Lord's servant. He's, look at verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, all three of them. It says, it talks about, uh, he says, I'm your servant. He says it several times. Um, he says, uh, give your servant an understanding heart to judge and so on. He is a humble person at this time. It's the same kind of idea that Paul said in, in Romans 12, 3. Paul said, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And that's how we should think, humbly, never thinking highly of ourselves. If Solomon gets the big head, by the way, if he gets too big for his britches, that's when he's going down. That's when a person, and he will say this later on in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction, right? Haughty spirit before the fall. But as long as he has this humble servant attitude, this, this is what God wants. He says the people are too many to be numbered. In verse 8, he talks about, by the way, he's referring to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 15 there. When he says that, Genesis 15, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven. Too many to count. The Lord is fulfilling this promise to Israel. We can see it right here. And he refers back to this promise. By the way, he refers back to two promises. One from the Davidic covenant now. One from the Abrahamic covenant. And both are being fulfilled. But the point he's trying to make here with all that is this. He's saying, look, Lord, I've got a lot of people to govern here. And I can't, I, I'm inadequate to do the job. He feels inadequate to do the job. And so in light of that, he asks for wisdom to judge the people. He needs wisdom. Do you ever feel inadequate to do what you're doing for the Lord? Do you ever feel inadequate, Mike, in, in, in your job pastoring? I mean, you feel inadequate to do this kind of stuff. And we need the Lord's help and we need his wisdom. We can't do without that. And he ends with this very self-effacing statement, verse 9, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Who can do this? Nobody can do it in their own strength. Not correctly, not according to God, not in honoring God, they won't do it. And so Solomon knows, left to himself, he can't do it. He needs the help of God. He needs the wisdom of God. And so, what does he, what does he, God says, what do you want? What does he pray for? He prays for an understanding heart. He prays, he says in verse 9, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. Phrase, understanding heart, means a hearing heart. Heart that's open to hearing. By the way, the heart in the Old Testament is not just a seat of emotions. It's, it represents the whole, the whole person, his intellect, his emotions, his will, everything about him. It, it's, the, it's the whole person. Solomon wants to be a king who, can, who listens to people, who has a heart to hear them, who has a heart to hear God. 
and a heart to hear people and listen with understanding. He wants to be able to solve their problems for two reasons. He says, I want to judge the, judge the people. I want to govern, govern the people properly. And number two, I want to discern between good and evil. I need discernment, Lord. That's what he says. What a great prayer request this is. Wisdom is a principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Let's stop for a minute and think about this uh, request for wisdom as it applies to us. First of all, Solomon recognized his true need for wisdom and understanding, understanding so must we. We also must understand it. Without the wisdom of God, we'll never be able to do his work properly. How can, we run, how can we do the work of the Lord properly without his wisdom? Do you think we can give good counsel to people if we don't have the wisdom of God? Do you think we can give godly counsel to people without the wisdom of God and set them on the right course? Do you think we can do that? Do you think we can preach and teach accurately the word of God and follow the line, the thought of the Holy Spirit in the passage without the wisdom of God? Do you think we can do that? Yeah, we can say a lot of stuff up here. But is it following the line and the thinking of the Holy Spirit is the question in the, in the text. Do you think that we can disciple new believers or old believers who are struggling with all kinds of issues without the wisdom of God? Are we able to do that on our own? Do we think that we can maintain unity in a church with a multitude of personalities that we have and make this thing work? Without the wisdom of God, can't do it. How can we deal with the multitude of questions that we receive? Boy, you get the strangest questions on your text. Somebody throws out a text, boom. Uh, when did the world start, Mark? I don't know. Uh, all kinds of stuff. How do we, all the decisions that we have to make, how can we do this without the wisdom of God? It's not possible. We're in desperate need of the wisdom of God. As Solomon felt the great need, so should we feel the great need in our own lives. Secondly, we live in a time when spiritual discernment is at an all-time low. We should know this by now. We don't need much discernment to know that we need discernment in these days, right? There are many churches in America whose doctrinal teaching is weak, if not non-existent. In many churches, they don't put a premium on preaching at all. Or, or, on, well, doctrine, I was going to say, but preaching as well, or preaching doctrine, we could say it together. Preachers seem to be more interested in feelings and, and entertainment and... Uh, appeasing people than they do instructing people in the word of god seems to be their focus every christians today turn everywhere to every source except for the bible what i heard this i don't know if you saw this article the other day and i was shocked i don't know when this came out but uh, somebody sent me the article about uh, andy stanley saying that expository preaching was easy and it's not how people grow uh, as you take people through the books of the Bible, you don't grow that way spiritually. Did you see this article, Mike? Oh, this is, uh, it, it, this is fascinating. Uh, you don't need all that Bible preaching in a church, all that stuff. And I'm like, what is this guy talking about? You don't need the Word of God to grow. You don't need the preaching of the Word of God to grow and so on. I mean, that's, there's this disturbing, disturbing lack of discernment among not only the parishioners, so-called parishioners, but the preachers, right? Also, maybe especially the preachers. That's where it starts anyway. It's all the more reason to desire God's wisdom. Number three, Solomon wanted wisdom from God, not for himself only, but for others. See that? He wanted it so he could judge the people of God. He wanted it for their sake. He wanted it to help them. It was, for, it was not a selfish request. It was for the people's sake that he wanted this. And though we need the wisdom of God for our own lives, all of us need that desperately for many different reasons. We need the wisdom of God to minister to other people as well for both reasons. Solomon 
The man who asks for understanding and, and wisdom exhorts us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the beginning of wisdom is, what do you think the beginning of wisdom is? Here it is, acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, with all your getting, get understanding. Prize her, understanding, wisdom, she will exalt you. She'll honor you if you embrace her. She'll place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. That's what Solomon says about the value of the extreme and estimable valuable value of wisdom. And in the context of enduring trials and tribulations in the book of James chapter 1, James 1, 5 says, while you're in your trials, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, you're in a trial, you're in a difficulty, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God <coughs> who gives to all generously. That's a great verse. Without reproach. And it will be given him. It will be given him. Wisdom will be given to you by God if you ask him for it. That's what it says there. What a great promise that is. It's the same thing Solomon did. How desperately we need the wisdom of God. All of us do. That's his request for godly wisdom. Notice next the gift of godly wisdom in verses 10 to 15. The gift of godly wisdom. Verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, um, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done it according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has not been one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will be not any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke. Behold, it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. You can see he's worshiped now both places, public places in this chapter. You know, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, everything we ask of the Lord is not always pleasing to him. I'm very sure of it. But this request from verse 10, according to verse 10, was, was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. God was pleased with this request. This is, by the way, this is a good guideline for prayer requests, this verse. What should we pray for? How about this? Pray for the things that please God. Pray for the things that, what, what, what you say, well, how do, how do you determine that? Well, if it lines up with his word, if it's taught in his word, it's taught in, uh, you know, the biblical teaching on prayer, then you're on safe ground. And furthermore, you're going to please God with your request. But the Lord's response has to do with the unselfish nature of the Solomon's request. The Lord, is, he's so pleased with us, this unselfish request by Solomon. And in verse 12, he says, Behold, I have done according to your words. He knows that Solomon wants to benefit the people of Israel. That's why he's praying his prayer. And he's, and he's pleased, and he says, I've done according to your words. And he, said, and he promises that Solomon will be the wisest man ever on the planet. I'm talking about the wisest man, not deity now. Uh, we, of course, we know that Christ is, possesses all wisdom. I love Colossians 2, 3. It says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No one can approach the status of Christ for sheer wisdom. We know that. But as far as men are concerned, human beings, Solomon is the wisest man ever. And the Lord is beyond gracious to him to give him also riches and honor. And he says, you're going to be unique as a king. No one's going to be like you. you know, look at verse 14. He, he says, this, this is always added with Solomon, this conditional promise. Look, you want, to, you want your days prolonged? 
That depends on your obedience or not. Some people don't like that when we talk about that. But the fact of the matter is the Lord is laying on Solomon again. We've seen this several times. Responsibility. Look, you got your responsibility fulfilled as well. You're not just going to coast along here and do whatever you feel like and get away with it. You have to live for the Lord. So the Lord is a giver of wisdom. This is a generous gift of his grace. He's a giver of wisdom. And by the way, this is not just a natural trait possessed by Solomon, this wisdom. This is a gift from God. It's beyond intellect. It's beyond human uh, brilliance. This is a gift from God. And by the way, I'm going to tell you the Lord will be more than happy to grant wisdom to any of his people who ask for him, for, for that, and who seek him, and who love him, and who fear him, and who look into his word, search into his word to find out the wisdom of God. He will grant wisdom to his people. Finally, look at the dem- demonstration of godly wisdom in verses 16 and 27. Didn't take long for a Quite the problem to happen, did it? Verse 16, demonstration of godly wisdom. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. You know, it's never easy, right, Mike? You always get these insane situations like, what did you just say? I can't even understand what you just said. Can you explain that again? Two women appeared, two harlots appeared before the king, stood before him. The one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day that after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth to a child. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. The woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your, servant, while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when, he, when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, for the living one is my son. The dead one is your son. The first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son. The living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king says, the one says, I wish I could have been there for this. This is my son who is living. And your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. The king said, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. We'll solve this problem quickly. (laughs) Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first one, woman the living child, for by, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. Now we can see why Solomon needed the wisdom of God, right? And no doubt Solomon spent the rest of his life dealing with difficult cases, hard cases. And I'm not going to comment much on this since I think it's self-explanatory. By the way, Solomon never intended to kill the baby. He just wanted to bring to surface the truth, and he used this drastic situation, and it worked. The true mother would rather her son be given away and live than to die, and he knew that, and he, and he, and he pointed it out. Solomon demonstrated the wisdom of God in this situation. He demonstrated it, that he had it, that God had given it to him. Not to mention, by the way, if you thought about this, not to mention that he is dealing with two women in a profession that's sinful and degrading, but how does he deal with them? He deals with them mercifully. He doesn't condemn either one of them. He just shows them mercy. He reminds me of how Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery in John 8. 
He said to her, go and sin no more. Very merciful. James 3.17, by the way, says the wisdom from above is, first, is full of mercy. People who have the wisdom of God are going to be merciful people. Look at verse 28. <clears throat> when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Word traveled fast. Gets out quick. They're in awe of the judgment. Why are they in awe of it? Look at verse 28 again, the end of it. They saw that what? That Solomon was brilliant. Now, it says they saw that the wisdom of God was in Solomon to administer justice. The wisdom of God demonstrated in the life of Solomon brought glory ultimately to who? To God, right? Now, this is coming back to God again. They saw the wisdom of God in Solomon. It's not the wisdom of Solomon that's to be applied. It is the wisdom of God in Solomon. That's how it works. That's what the people saw in Solomon. They saw the Lord working through him. God is glorified in what happened. He gets the glory. Let me ask you a question as we close. What do people see in you? When you're at your workplace or your neighborhood or wherever you're at, what do they see? Do they see a Mr. Worldly or Mr. or Mrs. Worldly Wiseman dispensing advice of all kinds to people? And I think you're the guy to go to with the great advice, but really your advice is not all that great because it's the counsel of the ungodly. Is that what they see? Do you just give out advice that the world considers valuable? Or do people in your sphere of influence see someone who demonstrates the wisdom of God in what they say and in their actions? What is it that they are seeing in your life? What do they see? By what, by what they hear you say and what they see you do. Let me close. Let's all turn to Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to close with, by reading an exhortation from Solomon. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 2. About the necessity and the value of godly wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Solomon says he should know, right? He's the man of wisdom, the man that God gave wisdom to. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandment within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, for if you cry for discernment, those words, wisdom, understanding, discernment, if you lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as, hidden, for, as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're grateful to look into your word, and we know that we are ignorant people, that we uh, don't have a clue, quite honestly, Lord, about many things. We kind of are just stumbling around in the dark most of the time trying to figure things out, not understanding many things. But we are grateful to know tonight that we have a God who is all-wise and all-knowing, and can dispense wisdom to his people. And, Lord, we need your wisdom to, uh, to live our own lives in a way that would please you. Uh, we need wisdom to, uh, for this church and decisions that are made here to, do, to uh, have ministry here that is, is pleasing to you. We need your wisdom in order to please you, Lord. We just pray you grant us your wisdom as we go our, each day, uh, go our, our way in our, in, in, by each day. Pray you grant us your wisdom. We pray that we would love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We just praise in Christ's name. Amen.